Thanks for tuning in to the Southwest Climate Podcast. I'm Ben McMahon of Cleanless. Zach Guido is away this month, but he'll be back next podcast. In this episode, Mike Crimmins and I recap the transitional weather patterns of the last few months of 2015 as we move from fall into winter and discuss whether this transitional season matched our expectations given what we might expect in an El Nino year. We also discuss what a characteristic southwestern winter pattern looks like, and we conclude with how this El Nino event has stacked up so far this winter and what we anticipate over the next few months. Looking at the last three months for temperature, it looks like we are mostly above average for almost all of New Mexico and most of Arizona, so a pretty warm fall period, mm-hmm. um, although we did see quite a bit of cool down in December then, right at the end. Trying to make sense of whether or not that was what we expected, I think, is, you know, we're still doing a little bit of head-scratching and trying to do a postmortem on the, you know, October through December period. Once you group up to that three-month period, you're definitely in your sort of climate realm. But then what were the, what were the weather events that actually, the day-to-day stuff that, you know, we all are, are living, putting our coat on, not bringing our coat, grabbing the umbrella, not grabbing the umbrella, right. Right. that stack up to make this sort of climate map. One of the important things is, is that this is pretty muted relative to what you and I are used to seeing with some of these climate maps. You know, usually when we see above-average temperatures, it's, it's sort of nailing the most extreme uh, record temperatures. This this map is actually just just above normal, and that's all of New Mexico. It's just above normal, so we're in the, like the top thirty three percent. And then, um, as you noted here too, Arizona was a real mixed bag, and on average was mostly average. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of cold pockets, a couple of warm pockets, and again, just either slightly above or slightly below. But that period relative to the long term average was. Average. And now the temperature, because it kind of cooled off in most of the West, it looks like, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a pretty strong gradient there from East to West. Is that, I mean, we were talking about a possible record warmest year for the United States, and we still had a global uh, record warm year for 2015, but for the United States, I think it ended up being number two. And yeah. so was that kind of the cool down in December in the West that it, may have drugged that down? I think it is. And I yeah. think that was mostly, and again, you know, when you do sort of a continental average, I remember like sort of last year we were talking on the podcast about the the warm west cool east mm-hmm. pattern well this was the cool west warm east pattern it was exactly the opposite seesaw where we were in the cool trough in the eastern u.s which you probably saw the pictures of I think people i saw people playing sand volleyball in baltimore in on December. christmas yeah. yeah i mean there yeah. was all of these these um pictures of people having you know their christmas trees outside and i mean just crazy and, and i know my family in michigan had a, a you know a, a, a unusual so they're um, on the good side of that gradient they're on the yeah, good side of the gradient yeah, and, the, yeah. and the nice thing is is that forecast wise that that was actually part of the prediction was mm-hmm. was to not have to sort of deal with some of the epic cold that had that had gripped them right around this time of year last mm-hmm. two three four years from a precipitation perspective, uh, that same three-month period, that October to December uh, 2015, most of uh, New Mexico being you know above normal to some places actually much above normal. It looks like a little bit of record wettest in the southeastern uh, corner of the state. And then Arizona was a lot closer to near normal. It looks yeah, like. yeah. I was actually pulling up some of this, the station observations, and I, I, I pulled up um, El Paso. So since October 1st, El Paso has had five inches of rain. And for October through May, they normally see three inches. So mm-hmm. just in uh, a couple of months, they've already exceeded the entire, you know, eight-month total for that period. Mm-hmm. And their path to that was through a couple of pretty epic wet events, including one right at the beginning of October. They picked up, as a lot of Arizona did too, and New Mexico had a kind of a busy October, which it was slow for them as well through November and December, except for that late 
season epic snowstorm blizzard that that clipped much of sort of southern and eastern New Mexico. El Paso got in on that, and actually that's what boosted their totals. So that whole that whole part of the Southwest is is really racing ahead of everybody else. Phoenix is actually um, is actually below average um, mm. for the October through the last couple of days, just slightly lagging behind. And again, that slow period we had in November, December, I think is really, we were expecting a lot more out of that period and it just didn't get it. We've talked some about the difficulty of characterizing, you know, I guess we have a number, a few different transitional seasons, kind of going into the monsoon is a little more defined because once the monsoon starts, it's pretty obvious that it started. Yeah, yeah. But when we're moving out of the monsoon into the tropical storm season and then from the tropical storm season into a relatively dry period and then moving at some point in time into the winter rains, there's not squishy. as many defined points. We don't say that's it starts right. on this yeah. day. That juxtaposition with the monsoon, I think, is really good because that's a hard start, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's within a week or two, the weather completely shifts over and we are in a monsoon season or we're not. And we're sort of waiting around for it. And we have to realize, too, that hard starts on seasons are very rare in the global um, weather and climate system. So I think we're a little bit maybe spoiled by that idea of wanting hard. We want to def- find things that happen on the calendar that we can plan around. And when you get into the end of the monsoon, the retreat of that high pressure system back into Mexico, the sun angle is lowering. We're starting to get now into Northern Hemisphere winter. The, we start to get the weather out of the West again, as, as we're seeing right now. We have recurving tropical storms, which you and I talked about for, for many months now. And then yeah, and then you're like waiting around for your first winter storm. And so it is, it's a, it's a mess of things. And every year down here in the Southwest can bring you something different. October is, if you look at the distribution of precipitation, there are tons of Octobers with nothing going on because there's no moisture to be had. Maybe the storms are coming in, but they're actually moving through dry. November is when we start to lean into that storm. and We'd expect to see maybe one or two of these storms drop far enough south and maybe have some moisture with them to put down some precipitation. Our better breaks are actually organized around our monsoon, July, August, September, mm-hmm. October, November, December, as we're talking about right now, is a is it's a yeah. transition mm-hmm. season and it's a it's a if you look at it as a whole, is a mess of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, possibilities of tropical storms, tropical storm moisture, nothing, mm-hmm. early season winter storms, and the juicy El Nino storms, which we are actually looking for this year and we didn't actually see for that period. Is January still considered to be transitional or should we be pretty locked in by that? So I consider for the Southwest, January, February, March is sort of the core of the winter season for Mm -hmm. us. And, And that's where you'd expect to see the Northern Hemisphere jet stream as far south displaced as it's going to be and even will actually start to retreat a little bit and as strong and as elongated as 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 you'd expect to see so that that's actually where we get into prime time for winter storm activity under just normal years and especially during El Nino years it's really game time for Mm -hmm. us for December's interesting enough and I heard a lot about this because there was some real concern as we were trying to figure out what to do with the drought monitor map about how um, bleak it actually was in November and December amid all of our sort of talk and advertising about the wet conditions coming in. There were parts of Arizona that saw no precip actually for November and much of December as well. I mean, if you go out to the far sort of southwest part of the state, not our wettest part of the state, but their their prime time for getting any precip, which isn't a whole lot, is actually from these winter storms sort of carving down there. They just didn't get any. Yep. When we look at a, a winter season down here, it's not as though some years it rains every single day, right. and some years it doesn't rain any days 
Well, actually, that's not true. It's, it's, <laughs> it has happened. It, it has happened before. It's actually yeah. much easier. We, we live in an arid climate, and it's actually our fallback position climatologically is dry. And it's, it's so much easier for us to do dry weather than it is to do wet. Right. And so in an El Nino year, all we do is we sort of lean into the frequency of those wet events that occur during even during average years and just increase the frequency or maybe increase the intensity mm-hmm. of them and, and they stack up a little bit more. So the pattern we had in December was actually a actually very normal mm-hmm. kind of winter pattern you get for the western U.S. where you have you have this sort of cool air settle into it. You have the storms are actually carving a path from right out of the Gulf of Alaska and then they have this inland trajectory and then they bottom out here over the southwest and then they, they move off to the to the northeast. The problem with those kinds of storms is that they don't bring much moisture with them. It's a BYOM, bring your own moisture sort of thing. They have very little to tap into. Um, so once they bottom out here, um, you see the clouds, the surface kind of come in and you see the clouds sort of build in and it gets a little bit breezy and there's some snowflakes fall on the mountains and you can watch them and that's about it. What that storm was able to do was though is pick up some of that subtropical moisture just to the south and just sling it into eastern New Mexico. A juicy subtropical flow just to the south of us, pretty El Nino-ish, but again, we were just out of position mm-hmm. for the whole month mm-hmm. and that changed as early January, early January, yeah. right? I mean, it was a full on, very classic shift into what you'd expect from an El Nino. So. During a normal winter, you expect to see a handful of storms. During an El Nino winter, you expect to see kind of what we saw that first week of January mm-hmm. happen a couple more times. But we can't do that week of January every week until April. We'd have Armageddon, quite honestly, and I don't think anybody would want that, even though we're all sort of cheering this event uh-huh, on. So. Uh-huh. Let's talk a little bit more about that January event, because I know you mentioned we don't really have a hard start to our winter rains, but it sure felt like that a hard felt start. Great. I know. I mean, you couldn't yeah. schedule that one. And we've seen that transition for the past kind of one to three months, going from some relatively anomalous late season tropical storm activity, probably oh boy, things we yeah. don't expect still happening, actually. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah what, Alex in the, in, in, the in Atlantic? In the Azores, and it, yeah, did you see and the then, path that we're supposed to predict? <laughs> It's going to like veer back into like Iceland I mean, or Greenland it's going, or something. It's going, it goes straight north and then west. It's a strange time to have the first tropical yeah, storm the of first the Atlantic May in season. January. Yeah, yeah, it's usually May, June. <laughs> so oftentimes even later. Hurricane Andrew, in fact, came in uh, Labor Day weekend in 1994. So you're thinking, so, so it's like the, the A this year versus the A. Nine month Andrew. difference. Nine month difference. Crazy. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. pretty crazy. And then we also have Pali in the Central yep. Pacific. Also atypical to have two storms spin up at the same time in January. I think that's so, and exactly right. We're and saying that's likely associated to the conditions that are favorable for El Nino. I, I think that's right. And I think that clearly the energy for these storms is out of warm water. And that connection between the enhancement in the East Pacific and, mm-hmm. and the suppression in the Atlantic is very clear. But at this time of year, you'd expect to see westerly screaming across both basins at, at this at these latitudes and tearing stuff apart. So I don't know if it just snuck in under some some temporary short-term conditions or what. And again, I think El Nino, given its shift in circulation pattern, actually does cre- still create some favorable pockets for mm-hmm. those storms to still form. The past kind of two or three months, this transition out of our messy fall signal into a more locked-in El Nino signal, that's pretty much what we saw in early January. And so I think one of the questions that circulated perhaps in the media or just in the public consciousness when it dried out. So we had a week of <laughs> yes. just great, this is an El Nino type scenario. This is kind of exactly what we expected. And then it dried out, yeah. which is also what we expected, right? To have that yeah. kind of vacillation between. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, and I even found myself 
getting into that weekend and in you know I, I, we got almost two inches of rain over five days mm-hmm. at my house and that that's pretty good i mean that's that's tough to pull off in a good week in a, in a monsoon mm-hmm. so it's clearly very wet and then i got to the weekend and started looking at forecasts and i think we all said wait a minute is that it are we done with this and yeah. no we're not the january part of this whole el nino at least looking at the past is it's early mm-hmm. believe it or not it's still early in the season to see the full-on impacts At the same time, when we think about weather events, if you look at the past El Nino events, the strong ones, and you look at some of the station data down here, you get these little clusters of events. And in between these clusters of events, meaning, you know, it rains for a couple of days, you stack up some good totals, it does stop Mm -hmm. and it dries out. And then you're sort of looking at the forecast and then two, three weeks later, you get another cluster, stops. I know it's, it's been very frustrating for me to refresh the the forecast and look for, well, when's the next setup? Mm-hmm. And it could be right around the corner because the forecast models are quite honestly really struggling out past a week. Mm-hmm. And the El Nino signal is, it's very strong and it's mm-hmm. actually exceeded strength depending on what metric you look at of the uh, this um, winter of 98. So we clearly have, we have all the energy, we have all the disruption in the Pacific. We just have to be patient and wait for that next setup. Yeah, so it's a really an expected pattern in terms of the normal climatology of an El Nino winter to see, you know, three, four, five, maybe seven days of a, a system push in, but then maybe see a couple weeks of dry out where yeah. it's just kind of sunny. I mean, again, you mentioned earlier, we live in a, a desert environment. And so rather than cumulative precipitation, which can be thrown off by an especially strong storm or a late season yeah. tropical push, if we think a little bit more about how frequently the storms come, then perhaps, I guess it's a messaging question, is how do you communicate, yes, this is what we expect when we go from a pretty decent rain week to a pretty dry week? We don't have a lot of events to say, oh yeah, they all look like this. And you know, just even, I just looked at Tucson, pulled up the 9798 event, the 283 event, and then I even threw in the 7273, which was actually just a, t- a, a, a tick weaker than 8283. And they're all really different in the way that they sort of stacked up. They have very broad general similarities, which is basically all we have to go on when we talk about sort of climate scale. And it's this idea, mm-hmm. we, you know, by the end of the season, what does happen almost all the time with these events is you you have above average precip. That's that's actually not saying a ton, is it? No. Uh, you know, all it is is that here's an average, here's a spot. Um, for these three events, they all ended up above average. Now, the similarities are a lot of that precip did end up accumulating through the January, February, March, April period. Mm-hmm. The timing and when was very different among those events. And that's mm-hmm. actually what we were trying to say with the October, November, December timeframe was that Comparing these past events, they don't actually look similar at all. They were really different in their makeup. So if you split up the cool season, that kind of October through, uh, what, April or March, I guess, October through March, that six-month period, the first three months is messy and transitional. Mm -hmm. The next three months is still pretty messy in terms of predicting a regular pattern. But if we look at the cumulative totals, we're much more likely to see more rainfall in that January, February, March period than in that October, November, December period. Yeah, and I think it's like the January, February, March period is less messy from a mechanism standpoint, right? Like we we can just, we take the the tropical storm variability Mm -hmm. out. Sure, of, out sure. of the the mix, and we now are just focused on the subseasonal variability. Where and, and now it becomes this this interplay of things like the Madden Julian oscillation. Mm-hmm. It's other big sort of climate patterns that can sort of emerge. MJOs are actually quite they're quite rare during El Nino events because El Nino becomes such a formidable force to, in reorganizing the global circulation. But 
Interesting enough, a, a Mandelian oscillation event, a very, very strong one, is actually underway. And I think is it's wrestling with El Nino. Mm-hmm. And then we have to think about there's other things like the Arctic oscillation, which the predictability is very low, has ties to snow cover in different parts of the world. Sea ice are at play too. So there's all these other... El Nino is clearly, it's the biggest, strongest thing in the room right now. But mm-hmm. there are other things that can kind of nudge it and shove mm-hmm. it out of, out of the way. All those things together lead to... El Nino really rearing up and seizing the opportunity and creating that January 1st. You know, at, at that point, you looked at the jet stream. The jet stream was very strong and extended all the way from the coast of China, and it was dumping in right at the California coast. That is the classic El Nino um, signal right there. Very elongated, very strong. And you can think about that. That, that is just a, it's dumping all this energy and moisture right at our doorstep. Mm-hmm. And when it retracts even a little bit. That energy is is dumped just a little bit out in the Pacific, and then storms are kind of just they sort of roll off of that, and they they can turn into these ridges to our north. They'll create this split where the storms will go south of us, and you get into this messy messy pattern where we see all we see all right. sorts of weather. And that's but usually kind of not not the really wet runs that we right. saw at that point. Um, we have models that are run four times a day that go out thirteen months, right? So that. Is amazing amount, and that's sort of that's climate models. Mm-hmm. They all are still very robust in saying you know February, March, April are wet here because mm-hmm. El Ninos do what they do, and you should see that frequency of those events sort of increase. But about our weather time scale, that actually what we're interested in, we're interested in both. But right. you know, like when's that next run? They are really struggling with mm-hmm. all these different moving parts and seeing what the next event will stack up. I think what we're really looking for is we're looking for a storm that's coming in at low latitudes on this this southward displaced uh, jet stream and bringing a bunch of moisture with it. That's what that event looked like in, in January. It was actually, I think, five storms that were all sort of lined up. And, you know, they had different sort of latitudes, but they would all sort of connect with that jet energy and they would connect with that moisture and they would just sort of funnel it in. And we were, t- you know, that the first severe thunderstorm warning of the new year was in L.A. County which is, you know, you don't think of that. And severe, yeah, it's like dangerous lightning, wind, and hail. And that was one of those storms moving on shore at that point in time. And, you know, we we did quite well here too with that event. So aside from some of the messiness, what we might expect over the next, you know, two or three months is some number of those type of systems to push across the Southwest. And how much moisture we get will depend a little bit on small scale uh, differences in atmospheric conditions. Is that? Yeah, exactly. It's okay. it's availability of moisture. You know, it's it's the energy. And it's it's also about locking into a pattern where you can get repeat storms. Mm. And just looking at Tucson, you can do this for any of these stations, and just mapping out when did it rain in the January through April period of 1998. The interesting thing was is it rained two days in January. That was it. And That was the and last strong El Nino. That was the last right, strong yeah. El Nino. Yeah, it rained two days. So we've already done better than that, mm-hmm. even though it looks, you know, kind of like, well, where did where did it go? By so in that year, it was a February-March signal, is that? Yeah, and that's where, you know, I'm looking at this, and it rained at least one day every week of February, and some of these are runs of three days in a row. So like in February, the, the first week, there were three days in a row where it rained a half an inch a day. And you think a half an inch a day during the, the winter is a lot of rain. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what those events look like there. It did it the next week, it did it the next week, and then it did it the next week. So, And then in March... A two-week break and then picked back up again by the end of the month and then even a couple of events in April and 
I think we forget that I've been here for 15 years now, and I always thought it stopped raining here in kind of the beginning of March, and that was it, Mm -hmm. because that's all I've ever seen. But if you look at the climate records, it can rain in late March and through the end of April, and it's we just haven't seen it as much. And now is that because we've been in the, I guess, almost 14 or 15 years of drought, a very strong La Nina signal a lot of those years, so we just didn't see a good wet signal in that late springtime? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, that, and you don't, I mean, in that 15, I've, I've been here for one complete realization, well, we, I can't call it yet, but of this mm-hmm. idea of the decadal variability, um, you know, interdecadal variability, just getting here right after that sort of the wet late 90s, you know, there's that suggestion in the climate change literature, too, about that that's, that's part of the impact here is, is a contraction of the wintertime season and it, mm-hmm. it not raining as much or precipitating as much later in the season. But El Nino years can really overpower that. And that's what I would expect to see this year. Mm-hmm. And I would expect we'd buck that trend. And I, we may and still end up having snow events on the mountains here in Arizona in April, which is, I haven't seen that in a long, <laughs> I haven't seen that in a while. Yeah, so it's difficult to forecast specifics, but in general, we expect pretty decent moisture signal through, for sure, through the rest of the winter and likely into early and even middle spring. In the predictions here for El Nino, we watched that temperature in the equatorial Pacific, that Nino 3.4, and there's all different metrics and indices around that. What happened in 97, 98 was is that it peaked, I think, in December and crashed and it mm. crashed through the spring and so um, there was all this sort of flurry of activity by April and May the El Nino forcing and the signal was gone and you see that in the data here too there was one event squeaked in in the later part of April and then that was basically it this year it the models at least and again they've been really struggling mm-hmm. at the seasonal periods don't suggest that crash and so that would then suggest that there'll still be warm water there still could be that forcing in the atmosphere i think there's been some discussion in the long-term forecast which are probably a little messier but that we may hover around not an el nino signal necessarily but certainly not dip back la nina most likely at this point as it goes back to neutral you know there's a lot of conversation in the, in the climate community right now about pdl pacific decadal oscillation interdecadal variability De- that decadal variability is a, is a it's a lagging indicator of ENSO variability. These El Nino events sort of energize these potential sort of reemergent patterns that can then persist in the North Pacific and then would be more sort of indicative that that maybe the frequency of these El Nino events is sort of increased. But man, we don't have any predictability of that. And it's it's not until you've been in one mode for years, you can go back and say, yeah, mm-hmm. we actually did switch in that year. The models are really, every week they've been sort of mm-hmm. changing their story, but they've been leaning a little bit less towards this strong crash to La Nina. The Climate Prediction Center actually has picked up on the idea of a La Nina for next winter, and they're actually doing a dry forecast, but I'm not sure we're, that's nailed down, and I'm not sure that's a, a foregone conclusion at this so, point. It's much easier for the system to now do neutral or La Nina because it's it's basically a battery that had been charged up for many years, and it's now, it's expended all its energy. All that energy is over in the, the East Pacific now, and I mean, you saw that through the 80s is that you can get into these sort of weak El Ninos and they can recharge and then you can crash into La Nina. But but again, if we're talking about decadal variability, it would really be this idea then of, well, maybe every couple years now, we, we could maybe two years from now, an, a moderate El Nino event emerges and we go back to neutral and you kind of, you mess around in this sort of middle ground rather mm-hmm. than 
the previous 15 years, which is we've had more La Nina than more La Nina, and which is our drought signal yeah. down here. And again, I'm not in any way trying to call this yeah, yeah, decadal no. variability um, either way. <laughs> now I'm just fascinated to mm-hmm. say that well, maybe this is one of those instances where we have shift. Maybe it isn't at all, mm-hmm. and maybe this is a blip in a much longer term drought. Well, even out. you know we've been sort of banging the drum that you can't really gauge how well an El Nino did until the season yeah. season was over. Yeah. I'm guessing with the decadal variability, yeah. you really can't gauge. It's it even until years, the, right? The decades over. Well, right? I mean, it was so, you know, yeah. it's it's still funny about like, well, when did when did we actually have a PDO shift? I mean, it, it's it was such a weird, messy signal. You can kind of you look back at a five year period and kind of say, well, it was maybe ish here, and then it's certainly you know we have been in this this uh, cool mode for a while. Several metrics now suggest we're in a warm mode, but it's again, it's one of those things you don't know until mm-hmm. it's happened, sort of thing, which is very unsatisfying. It's not a forecast at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to learn yeah. and a lot to. Well, I think that's where some of the excitement about even this El Nino event is because we have such a limited sample size of these strong events, just having one on record that you can sort of pay close attention to as it progresses through the season gives us just another data point to think about. And Absolutely. It'll be very different from all the other strong El Nino events in some ways, but it'll also start to show consistent patterns in other ways. And eventually, after they have enough of these, we have a sample size, which not very satisfyingly is many years out. Let's say we had 10 under our belt, which again isn't very much. Most likely, it'll be there'll be some general similarities and then a lot of really interesting sort of sub patterns and flavors that gave them all their sort of unique characteristics, which is you know kind of what we were talking about with this October, November, December period is of years here's its own bit of flair with this El Nino event. And then we'll see what the flair looks like for the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean, it's it's somewhat bounded in time and space mm-hmm. um, and the mechanisms, right? Because it's not it's not like this event's going to come up with, uh, you know, it's it's not going to sling, it's not going to make a East Pacific hurricane and, and try to, you know. Careful. You know, <laughs> exactly. See, this is the, fam- this is to be the famous last words podcast, I yeah. think is what yeah. we should, we should rename right. it. To me, it's really about, well, what is, what do the events look like as far as their character mm-hmm. um, in time through the rest of the season? How closely are they clustered together? Are they really spread out? The intensity of events, we do see a sort of shift towards single one day precip amounts being higher with El Nino events, just because you think mm-hmm. about that, what that mechanism of them being supercharged with a a subtropical jet makes them a little bit more energetic. The likelihood of them ever approaching the intensity of some of our stronger monsoon events is almost, it's almost impossible. Yeah. I mean, right. right. If you look at like return intervals Mm -hmm. for the, the the types of rain intensities you get out of convective towers of thunderstorms that extend up Mm -hmm. to 50,000 feet um, and have, you know, precipitable water amounts that are like two inches of water. We don't get convection of that um, magnitude during the Mm -hmm. winter. And a cold atmosphere can't hold that much water. <laughs> and so, so there's these limited. But, but again, what makes um, wet El Nino events stand out is the runs of multiple days of mm-hmm. rain. And so the you know, antecedent conditions mm-hmm. and then long duration. So that, I mean, mm-hmm. that's really what that first week of January looked like. And, you know, we were here on campus that by the end of the week, it had gotten colder and colder and colder and wetter and wetter and wetter and there was water running everywhere and the snow levels had actually um, come quite down so too. if we were going to look for the next you know two three four months mm-hmm. a higher cumulative total than average yep. but also more frequent storms than average these past events we do see that you know more rainy days um some of those days are actually um wetter than some you know sometimes they'll break that daily total mm-hmm. rainfall record again for that total on that day but yeah i would expect to see runs of days 
with breaks, um, maybe one or two of those days is actually a pretty heavy one. And then, yeah, and then you mm-hmm. get to the end of the season and you, you start to you, you do, do your tally sheet and you're above average. Mm-hmm. And temperature, we're probably looking at, over the course of the season, probably a little cooler, but we're still going to have runs of these nice, warm uh, desert winter days, right? Yeah, I mean, and yeah. we've been slightly above average, I think, on temps mm-hmm. just as of recently. And then um, the overnight temps have actually been near average, I mm-hmm. believe, or maybe even slightly below average because we've dried out good radiational cooling. Um, a little bit of ridging is, is brought in these warm temperatures, but it is not, I mean, it, maybe it's even useful and it's hard to, to be so down, but like, think of a La Nina winter, <laughs> think of what, you know, what a La Nina winter is exactly the opposite, right? It's actually very warm during the day. You know, we're in the seventies mm-hmm. and low eighties during January, the ridge is screaming North of us. The storm track is nowhere even close to us. And we don't even cool down that much at night because you've gotten such mm-hmm. high uh, daytime temperatures. So this does not feel like a La Nina. No. Even during our, our, you know, these breaks in the monsoon, you still have this sense of, okay, it's still winter. And the winds are out of the northwest, um, so it's sort of blowing in cold air. And so it's, it still feels like there's possibility. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of CLEMIS, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with CLEMIS, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA Program Manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, Research, Outreach, and Assessment Specialist with Clemus.